Jeremiah 33, verse 13 through, sorry, 14 through 16. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Well, this is a fun, it's always fun to be here, right? Okay, amen. I feel like there's not a lot of life out there. So it's a lot of fun to be here on Sunday morning, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Mike Cronin, I love it. Okay. Um, but it's especially fun to be here on, during Advent season. It's just really a, an awesome time to, to come to church and to be together. If you've been around here long um, at all, you know that we make a, a habit every Sunday of opening up this book and uh, preaching from it, reading it. Um, and we do that because we believe this book is filled with truth, truth that we need just to make it through this world, truth about who God is and who he's called us to be and how he's provided for us in our greatest need. Um, and typically the way that we examine this book and we preach it on a Sunday morning is we typically go through large sections of scripture. So a couple weeks ago, we finished a series walking through the 17th chapter of John, really important chapter in the gospel of John. We spent eight weeks looking at just one chapter, just sort of verse by verse by verse. At the beginning of the year, we'll start a new series walking through, diving into the book of Acts. And so our preferred way of preaching the Bible is just large sections of scripture moving through sort of chunk by chunk as we go along. What's unusual about Advent season, at least the way that we're approaching it this year, is that rather than having one, one section of scripture that we're working our way f- through from one week to the next, is that we have sort of selected passages which will guide us through um, our Advent series together. And so the first one is here in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. And I, I know it was, I think it was already read, I got here a little late, but I'm thinking you guys already heard it, but I'm going to Did you guys already read it? Great, I'm gonna read it again. It's just three verses. We're gonna read it again. I'll pray and then we'll dive in. Okay, so this is Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning to come into this place and to worship you as our God. We pray that just as we direct our attention Um, to Jeremiah chapter 33, Lord, that you would simply show us Christ in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would take this word, which we believe to be eternal and true. We ask that you would write it on our hearts and form us and shape us into the people that you have called us to be. Um, We ask that you would do that now. Ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it began in the year 1992. It was the siege of Sarajevo the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. During the Bosnian War, this was the biggest siege of a capital city in the history of modern warfare. Many of you were around during the time, remember the images on the TV of just total devastation. Within a short period of time, the city, a historic center for music and art and all things related to culture, was being pummeled into a rubble. The residents that lived there, that called Sarajevo their home, did their best to hide in their homes during this time. Many, as you can imagine, were injured. Many lost their lives. During this time, there was also a significant food shortage. The people who lived in the city 
As you could imagine, you and I would be, they were simply losing hope. On May 27th of 1992, at four o'clock in the afternoon, a mortar dropped on the final functioning bakery that was in the city. Just completely devastating it. 22 people were killed. Most of them were people who were standing in line just to eat bread. Well, one resident of the city decided that he had to do what little he could to inspire hope for the residents of his city. His name was Vedran Smelovich. That's what it is. Vedran Smelovich. And he was the principal cellist of the Sarajevo Opera. On the Sunday evening following the bakery massacre, Mr. Smelovich, with cello in hand, walked to the very site of the bakery, now just a heap, a heap of stones. And at four o'clock, the precise time that the bomb was dropped, he took out his cello wearing full tucks and tails and just began to play. Just began to play. He played for 22 straight days. A day, not like nonstop 24 hours, okay, but 22 days, a day for each of the victims that lost their life in that place. If you could see, the, the video is just such a juxtaposition. Beauty and hope amidst rubble. He played and he played and he played. 22 straight days. Smolovich played despite the fact that bombs were being dropped around him, that bullets were flying by him. And after the 22 days were completed, the cellist continued to play in various places, graveyards and bombed out buildings throughout all of Sarajevo. He played until December of 1993. One writer put it like this. He played to ruined homes, smoldering fires, sacred people hiding in their basements. He played for human dignity. That is the first casualty in this war. Ultimately, he played for life, he played for peace, and for the possibility of hope that exists even in the darkest hour. Well, church, in this season that we find ourselves in, this Advent season, in the midst of the rubble of the world around us, in the midst of pain and suffering, in the, in the midst of communities that in our day and age are torn apart by war even now, in the midst of personal pain, loss, and grief, in the, pit, in the midst of great sin and wickedness, we are reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ is hope for a people in desperate need of hope. It is a light that shines in the darkness. As we look together at Jeremiah chapter 33, we see that this is precisely what the Lord is calling us to as a people, is to remember the hope we have in Jesus. And to, to take hope, why? Because of this, better days are coming. Better days are coming. Why can we, if somebody were to ask you right now, why can you be a hopeful people? Why is one of those candles designated as the candle of hope? The answer is simply because we are a people of hope. Why? Because better days are coming. It's what the Bible tells us. It's what we discover here in Jeremiah 33. And it's precisely the news 
that God's people needed to hear. So as we walk through this text, we'll see sort of three different things. The first thing is, as we consider verse 14, the need for better days. The second thing we'll consider is the promise of a king. And then lastly, we'll look at verse 16, the result of his reign. So the need for better days, verse 14, the promise of a king, verse 15, and the result of his reign in verse 16. Verse 14, behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah was a prophet and he was called by God to warn and exalt the peop- exhort the people of Judah some 600 years before Christ was born. If you're familiar with the story, Jeremiah's message was specifically for the tribes of Judah. There's 10 tribes to the north, Israel, two tribes to the south. That was Judah. That's where the city of Jerusalem was. That's where the Solomonic Temple was. And Jeremiah's message was specifically, yes, it was for the nation of Israel, but it was specifically for the people of Judah. And they were a people who were in need of warning. His job was to warn them, to exhort them, and they needed a warning, okay? While God had called these people to be his people and therefore a special people throughout the world, a people who were, who were supposed to worship him and him alone, a people who were supposed to embody and reflect his very characteristics, his attributes were supposed to be embodied in these people so that if you wanted to get an idea of what God in heaven was like, all you had to do is look at his people and you would get an idea. Well, that's not how you would describe the people of Judah. It's not how you would describe the people of Israel at this time. Instead, they were living just like the world around them. They were living like the pagan nations, worshiping idols just like the other nations. Their mindset was something like this. Well, we possess the city of Jerusalem. We possess Solomon's temple in all its splendor. They felt like they were a chosen people. There was nothing that they were going to be able to do to drive God away. God would always be there. He would always take care of them. They just had it made. Think about it like this. These were a people who thought that because they had a religious building, this isn't going to sound familiar at all, because they had a religious building and because their life was filled with religious activity, again, this is not going to sound familiar. I'm being sarcastic. It should sound wildly familiar. They they thought that because they possessed a a religious temple, a building, and their lives were filled with religious activity, that it did not matter how they lived. In fact, those two things gave them a license to live how they wanted to live. That's how they were operating. They could go to the temple to perform their religious duties. They could say their prayers. They could offer their worship. Then the rest of the week... They could just live however they chose to live. They could worship other gods if they wanted to worship other gods. They they could take advantage of the poor if they wanted to. Their life was filled with religious activity, so they could take advantage of the poor. They They could mistreat the neighbors around them. While their life Here's the the, the reality. While their life was filled with religious activity, their hearts were far from God, very far from God. And Jeremiah is sent to them to warn them that they must turn from their sin and return to their God. That's what his message is to them. In Israel, it's important to know that Israel, during the time that Jeremiah prophesied, that Israel was in a significant period of decline. 
A significant period of decline. 400 years it had been since King David sat on the throne of a united kingdom. 400 years ago. And since then, if you go back and you read the story of the kings that come after him, they're always compared to him and either they have a heart that's like their father or their heart is unlike their father. And we find more of the latter. Individuals who ruled the nation into things like idolatry, led them into idolatry and covenant breaking. The result was they were an unfaithful people. And as a result of their unfaithfulness, judgment is coming to God's people at the hands of the Babylonians. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar are knocking on the door. The king of Babylon is advancing to Jerusalem during the book of Jeremiah. Advancing to Jerusalem. The streets of Jerusalem, just a few verses ahead of our section today, we discover the, the streets will be filled with bodies. God sends Jeremiah to them as a way of warning them of the coming judgment, but also as a way of exhorting them to simply be who God called them to be. Be the people of God. And as you might imagine, this was not an easy task for Jeremiah. In fact, the assignment was rather challenging. If you just imagine, he is delivering a hard message to a hard-hearted people. And you know what they didn't want anything to do with? Him or his message, right? And so Jeremiah's life, if you read throughout the book, you see that his own people plotted against him. He endured persecution at their hands. And at the very beginning of this chapter, Jeremiah finds himself imprisoned by his own king, Zedekiah. In fact, he is commonly referred to as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had a hard life, a difficult assignment. And if you read the book, which I, I hope you have and maybe will consider doing, you will discover one sad story after another of disobedience and judgment. But you're thinking to yourself right now, well, this happy, Merry Christmas to you too, Pastor, right? <laughs> but in the chapters, we find ourselves here this morning between chapter 30 and 33 in the midst of really, really bad news we discover a glimmer of hope. In the midst of bad news, there is really, really good news. And that's what, we th when we think about Advent, that's what we should be feeling as we consider the season that we're in right now. There's, there's many of us who long for, I mean, this is gonna be hard to imagine, I know for some of you, but, but there's some people Again, just hang with me on this one. Who get so excited about this season. Who, who get so excited to embrace the joy that it promises that they even go as far as, again, just hang with me on this, decorating their houses before Thanksgiving. That's how desperate they are. Just for a sign of, of joy and of hope. All right? Advent is a time when, when we consider the, the, the odds are that there are people in here right now who are just simply frustrated with life. Feel like the darkness is creeping in all around you. And if that's you this morning, good news is Advent is for you. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot 
overcome the light. How, how as terrifying as it looks, it is unable to overcome the light. Even when your life is filled with bad news after bad news, good news is still to be found. In verse 14, we see this phrase, the days are coming. And there's a reference three times in this section to these days, these future days that lie ahead for the people of God. Days are coming. Remember, it's written to a people who are about to endure the horrors of conquest in captivity. Some 70 years they're going to spend in exile in a foreign land under a foreign authority. 70 years. And if that described your existence or my situation, I just I'll speak for myself. I would be tempted to think if, if, if my sin, the sin of my people brought about me a judgment that led me to, to exile for some 70 years, my, my temptation would be go one of two ways. Either one direction, my sin is so terrible, so bad that there's nothing God can do. That I am without hope in this world. That this is just the way it's gonna end. That would be one direction my thought life would take me. The other direction would be, well, what kind of God is this? He made a promise to me. Has he forgotten his promise? I thought he's supposed to be faithful. Well, where are you now, God? I would be tempted, as you likely would be, to simply give up hope if we found ourselves in this situation. Now, there's sin was significant. Judgment was on its way in the form of Babylonian exile, but God's faithfulness was stronger than any foreign invader could be. He would not forget his people. He would not forget the promise that he made, the promise that he made back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David, that he would, through David, through him and his offspring, would establish his throne that would reign forever. God would be faithful to that promise. So what is God going to do? Well, this brings us to verse 15. What is God going to do? We discover in verse 15 the promise of a king. If we read verse 15, we read that in those days God will, and you'll be helped if you look at, at your copy of God's word, that God will cause a righteous branch. That would be something I would underline in my Bible, a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The hope for tomorrow is found in the promise of a righteous branch. Now, this imagery is, should maybe catch some of us if we're unfamiliar with the Bible, might kind of seem like, what? Like, that's not the type of image that I necessarily equate with strength and with resolve and power of a branch. But this is common language. This is common imagery to talk about this coming king. This is the second time Jeremiah refers to this branch. Originally, he does so in chapter 23, of verse 5 of chapter 23. We also are familiar with Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that talks about this branch that is going to come from the, 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 the stump of, of Jesse. What is this branch? What is the idea? What does this image of this branch mean? It's an odd image, to be sure. Well, I want you to imagine with me a tree that's just been cut down, but not removed. So just hacked off, but not removed. The stump is still in the ground. What, what else is still in the ground if the stump is still there? Roots. Underneath the surface, there's still activity. There's still life in those 
roots. And some species of trees and of bushes will continue to grow even after it has been cut down. So while it looks like on the surface life is totally gone, there's no hope, underneath the surface there's still possibility. The stump in this sort of analogy represents uh, the dynasty of David as it would be in Jeremiah's time. Because of the sin and rebellion of David's descendants, because of their refusal to remain faithful to God, because of their sin against God and their insistence on worshiping idols, and God would cut off the house of David. He would cut it down. Judgment came to the people of God at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And, but while it looked like it was cut down, that it was over, he did not remove the stump. The stump was still in the ground. People living in exile. They, they, they have the appearance of hope is gone, life is over. The stump, however, is still there. Hope is still possible. We've probably all participated in this type of activity one way, shape, or another. Last year around derecho time, um, got a little chainsaw happy. Maybe some of you did too. Feel like I got a new toy, figured out a new skill. This is kind of fun. And just sort of went to town in our yard, Okay. And I uh, just started like cutting stuff down, shrub after shrub, even a few trees, see you later. Um, just, you know, trying to, things that had gone unkept and overgrown for years, just no more, okay? Cut them down. Well, we didn't remove the stump. The stumps are, are still there. In fact, if you are a budding entrepreneur, no pun intended on that one, but if you are a budding entrepreneur where stump removal is something that you may want to consider because I've tried like crazy to get a stump remover into my property to get rid of some of these stumps and they don't show up. So anyways, there's lots of stump work out there. There's a job for you maybe. Start something up. So we, the stump is still in the ground. So it shouldn't surprise you that after you cut off the stump, come back this spring, you know, just a few months later that there are from this shrub that was cut down, multiple shrubs, there's new life emerging, new life coming up. Why? Because the roots are active, right? Life is still, is coming up from the stump. The appearance of death, what was the appearance of death in the fall and the spring now begins, life begins to emerge. God's people, as they consider their situation, the rubble of their city, the, the distance they are from their home, the kingdom, they're thinking, is over. All hope is gone. But the text says that a branch will sprout up from the stump. And that branch, more specifically, will be a king. Look at the text. It says, will spring up for David. Will spring up for David. It means it's gonna, the branch is going to come from the line of David. Be a royal branch. Not just that, it'll be a king like no other. If you keep looking at the text, it says, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He will do, this king, this branch will do what no other king was able to do. He will uphold righteousness. Is, why is this so important? He will be a king who will reign in righteousness. It's so important because we know to be true that the way that a leader goes, the Bible sees this, says this over and over again, the way that a leader go, goes, so goes his people. And so, you should not be surprised to find kings who give themselves towards things like idolatry, to find a people who are broken and caught up in idolatry. 
If one of David's descendants dis, dis, uh, tolerated idolatry, so would the people. If one of David's descendants tolerated injustice and oppression, guess what? So would the people. This king would be like a king like no other. No king they've ever seen. See, people did not just want to be brought back into the land. They also were needed a new king. That brings us to verse 16. What would life look like under the reign of this new king? Well, again, look at verse 16. We see that this new king would lead his people away from idolatry. He would reign over them with righteousness and with justice. And his reign would provide for the people of God salvation and security. You can see it there in the text. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Two things that this king will usher in, salvation and security. And as the people are led by the true servant of God, they would in turn reflect the very character of their God. And people all over the world would say this about them. Listen, look what it says. The Lord is their righteousness. This is what they would say. The Lord is their righteousness. This passage ends in such a striking manner. Look at the beginning of verse 16. It describes a sort of future state of existence. In those days, in those days, the days that will come, Judah will be saved and secure. A description of what Judah and Jerusalem will be like. And then he says, and this is the name by which it will be called. In my Bible, I underline the words, uh, underline the words salvation and saved and securely. And I also underline the word it because it stands out. And this is the name by which it will be called. Well, what is it referring to? This is unusual. If you go back and read it in chapter 23, it does not say the name by which it will be called. It says the name by which he will be called. But here it says it. It was referring specifically to Judah being saved and Jerusalem being secure. So what will Judah being saved and Jerusalem being secure be called? What will the motto be of this new city? Simply this, the Lord is our righteousness. Now this is unusual, especially with all the talk we've done so far about a king and a kingdom. With all the focus about the text so far about a king that will come from the line of David, you would expect it to read something like, the king is our righteousness. The king is our savior. But here it says, the Lord Old Testament Hebrew, Yahweh, God, is our righteousness. This is a pivot in the text. So what is going on? Which one is it? Is it God who is the savior of the people? Who is this? Or is it the king who would come from the line of David? Which one is it? Well, if you've been around here very much, you probably know the answer to that question. And if you haven't, I'm so glad you're here. To help us understand the answer to that question, how does this work? Is it the Lord who's saving God himself or is it a king from the line of David? We could just simply look into the Christmas story. Go to Luke chapter one. And when Gabriel appears to Mary and prophesies to her, tells her what's happening, he gives us a clue into what's happening in Jeremiah 33. Luke chapter one, verse 28 through 33. This is what it says. 
And he came to her and said, this is Gabriel talking to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Son of the Most High, God. He will receive the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Gabriel is clarifying exactly who this baby is. And what he's saying is the baby who she will give birth to will be son of the Most High and the son of David. God himself becoming flesh, human being, living among us. This Jesus would be the king that Jeremiah had prophesied about and God's people had longed to know. He would offer his people salvation and security and he would lead them in righteousness and in justice. It's so interesting as you consider, especially when you think about this prophecy and how, how long God's people had been waiting for a king, for the king to arrive on the scene. It's so interesting when you think about how he didn't quite meet their expectations. I think this is one of the real fascinating, intriguing parts of the story of Jesus is how he just did not meet their expectations. See, they wanted a king who would reign and rule with an iron fist. But instead, they got a king who came and said something like this. Love your enemies. Blessed are you when others persecute you for righteousness sake. Didn't meet their expectation. They wanted a wealthy king who would harness all of the power and the prestige that this world had to offer. That's what they wanted. Instead, what did they get? They got a king who said something like, it's the humble and it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And it's the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Didn't quite meet their expectations. They wanted a king who would destroy, completely annihilate all their enemies. Instead, they got a king who died for his enemies and has asked his people to do the same thing. He came to show compassion and love to the most vulnerable, to offer care for the sick and to provide hope for the hopeless. See, the, the, the deal was the people wanted a king like themselves. That's what they wanted. The truth is, that's what you and I want too. But in Jesus, we discover the king that we really need. This king would eventually give up his life 
and in doing so would perform the work necessary to accomplish the salvation for sinners like you and me. And he would invite us to live and to dwell with him securely forever. This is the king that we long for. This is the king that we need. A king who would come and who would simply be the righteousness for us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jeremiah in chapter 33, verse 14 through 16, tells us that we would be declared or spoken over as the very people of God, that the Lord is our righteousness, what he's telling us is that, is that we would not be able to save ourselves. As much as we would long to do that and try to do that and are tempted to do that, but that God must save us. And that's what Christ the King came to do, to be our righteousness so that we might become the very righteousness of God. So that when people look at us as people of the King, the, the banner that would fly over us would be, the Lord is our righteousness. What's the King doing today? The King is in heaven, on his throne, reigning and mercifully calling each of us to turn from our ways and to trust in him. To turn from our sins before it's too late because as this Advent season reminds us, yes, Jesus came once, but he's also gonna come again. And when he comes again, he's gonna set everything right. Turn to him before it's too late. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, just want to take the opportunity to remind us in the midst of this Advent season that we can use this as an opportunity and, and as a challenge that our worship, that our fellowship, and that our ministry, the activity that God has called us to do and to, to do as followers of Jesus would be like playing a great song of hope in the midst of rubble so that when other people hear our song or see us that it might inspire hope that it might ultimately lead people to the king that's what he's placed us here on this earth to do to bring glory to him to not let our light go out but to allow it to shine brightly against a backdrop of utter darkness. And it's a light that the world so desperately needs. And so this season, I just encourage you to take advantage of just the coming weeks ahead to be what God has placed us here to be, a little outpost of his kingdom, pointing other people to the one true king, the king that we all need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to, to reflect on um, the great work of the mighty King. We confess that uh, we probably have expectations for who Jesus 
is or ought to be. And oftentimes those expectations don't line up with the truth of your word. And so I pray that you would help us to remember um, that King Jesus is precisely um, who we need. Help us to take advantage of this um, season as an opportunity to, to not just renew our hope in the coming King, but to also inspire hope um, in others in the midst of a dark world. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.